Now entering Nerdist.com. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel, and it's hosted by Ben Blecker, where he gets a bunch of writers, and he asks them lots of questions, and it's starting now, so this will be the end of the theme. But I don't know, these, these audiences are very interesting to me. It's, it's a thing that comes up now and again on these podcasts, uh, because we are, you know, so many of us are creators who have direct interaction with our fans, mm-hmm. and it's part of how we sell our product, and it's part of how we get to keep doing what we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a complicated relationship. I mean, you're writing primarily young adult fiction. Um, For now, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so this is the audience that you've, you've grown. Um, what, is the, what, are, what is your audience like? Who, who makes them up? Are they teenagers? Are they adults? Who responds to your work specifically? I, I do. Well, I think it depends on if you're talking about the books or if you're talking about online stuff. And the mm-hmm. online, I feel like my life online is as much of what I do. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the, the young adult books, I'm assuming, are mostly probably people of around college age or just like teen, high school, college, mm-hmm. with... Uh, with there is a lot of adult YA readership mm-hmm. now as well. Oh, absolutely! A lot of the people who follow me online don't know I'm. They, they're like, "Wait, you write books? That's super weird. We didn't even know. We'll, we'll go look for your That's book now." So crazy to me. So, I mean, I feel like again, you have a big online presence, uh, and you do a lot of writing online. Mm-hmm. You certainly have this very strong personality online, mm-hmm. um, but I feel like that isn't isn't that feeding the books, and aren't they feeding each other? They don't have a, as one-to-one a correlation as it would appear because, yeah. I mean, certainly I think this is disappointing to publishers because they're like, Absolutely. considering, you know, <laughs> um, and I actually, I'm, but I'm really glad it doesn't because I, mm-hmm. I my books are, um, you know, it's good to write the books and it's enjoyable. But books do kind of follow a certain set of... Like, you have to kind of build a little bit of a fence in order to tell a story. Mm-hmm. I, am, I am trying to construct a particular thing over here. Yeah. But what I do online, I, I have no restraints on. Mm-hmm. And I don't actually... I do whatever feels right on any given day. And if it's being serious or if it's not being serious, I do... Even hour to hour, it can change. <laughs> Sometimes within single minutes, it can sure. change. And that is absolutely fine. And I don't put any... My one rule for myself is to not put any restrictions on what I do online and never never make it about trying to sell any books. Because mm-hmm. that would be awful, first of all, sure. and boring. <laughs> and there's so much that we have to do already in life that is completely devoid of joy. And, you know, it's there should be something that we do simply for the sake of doing it mm-hmm. because it feels right and it is what we want to be doing. And so, um, so I'm never trying to really push the books yeah. on it. I'll answer quite like if people want to talk about them, sure. Like, uh, right. but I don't make it. That's not what my, it's not particularly what I go there for. So, I mean, it, se- it seems obvious then what you're getting out of the work online, mm-hmm. you know, you get to be yourself and you get to, it's very pure and it's very kind of unfettered. Um, what are you getting from writing prose, writing novels? Well, that's, that I mean, that getting... is primarily my, the function of my brain. That's primarily what I like to do and how I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm excited that I get to do it for my job. It's, it seems yeah. like a kind of miracle every day. Like, <laughs> you know, perhaps you know the feeling of, wait, this is, this is I, I, yes, I'm allowed to do this? Someone's letting me? Fantastic. <laughs> 
uh, yeah, no, I, li- I like to write books. I'm glad to be doing it. And when, you know, obviously when you sign a contract and you have books that are coming out, you have more obligations about when they're due and the order they come in and, you know, if you start a series, finishing it. And so, um, so the, yeah, the, the, while there are restraints, they aren't, they aren't horrible. Right. They aren't onerous. But I'm, I'm wondering, you know, from a creative standpoint, does it push a different button for you? Yes. I mean, because you, it pushes the story button, it pushes mm-hmm. the character development button, it pushes the, all the things about books, you know, that, that are... That are important, uh-huh. and that you know, it's a very different mental task than writing mm-hmm. single shots. You know, sure. that you're sort of putting out about anything that you want. Yeah. So it's it's flexing a different muscle. In a yes, lot of ways. absolutely. Uh, and yeah, it's it's a lot more acting. You're becoming those characters. And and frankly, um, I was thinking about this before I came over because I I'd been listening to some of the other podcasts and okay. about how other people's backgrounds, and I was like trying to think about mine. It's like. It's like, what? Who am I? What the I'm hell am sorry I? Sorry to send you into the spiral. No, what? 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 Who am I? Um, but I, uh, I have an MFA. I went mm-hmm. to an MFA program, and one of the things that occurred to me that is funny is that um, of all the writing training you do in these, in a, an MFA program, none of it involves having to tell a story. Like, really? I, I we never had any story training. What goes on? <laughs> Well, <laughs> now, I mean, of the particular program I went yes. to, we never had classes. Which was where? Columbia. Okay. I went to two programs there at once. So I went, it was in the theater program and I was in the writing program. And the only places I dealt with story, if I dealt with it, was in the theater mm-hmm. program. And not even in the theater program, it was when they would send us over to the film program to do any crossover work. It's crazy. So, in fact, it was so extreme, this aversion to talking about stories that I spent my last year there working under a professor in the theater department who is actually quite famous, so I don't want to name him. Um, but he was, he was building a show with the, with the acting cast, and um, his goal was no story. And eventually, nine months into development, and this is not a joke, no audience and no critics... He wanted to create something that was so... No, this is, this is a true story. Oh he, he wanted to create something that had no story and that no critics would come to and was basically... It, it was actually that navel-gazing and that... Right. Uh, that and academic that, and... It was the, it, that was the stated atten- and attention. And, and these poor actors who were <laughs> you know, attempting to get agents and recognition and have people come see them. And he's like, I don't want any critics to come to this show. And I want the audience to feel like Lord. that they've been imprisoned here. And it was awful. <laughs> and there was, a lo- there was a surprising amount of that. I, and I think that I had, I had in the writing department a number of incredible professors Mm -hmm. but we never I can't remember once talking about story so what was the focus tone okay interesting uh specific uh voice development is a big one Mm -hmm. individual tics like dialogue uh dialogue work maybe Mm -hmm. almost I, I as I remember it it's almost entirely tone interesting which it kind of makes sense. I mean, I think we're about the same age, and it feels like the generation of writers 
especially fiction writers preceding us were sort of this Raymond Carver mm. school, right? That it, tone was very important. Story was 50 not so pages important. about a seashell. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, so it makes sense that these professors would kind of focus on that. It was very... that's where the short story had been, that's where yeah. the novel had been. It was very looked down upon to be kind of trying to do anything that wasn't 50 pages about a seashell. You know, that wasn't... Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to say that that was true of everybody, but mm. they really wanted you to... I mean, I, I think that... Good. There are good programs, and then there are some extremely, extremely terrible ones. And one of the common questions I get is, you know, do you think I should go to an MFA program? Mm-hmm. And I say 80% of the time or more, I would say no. Yeah, I think you're right. Because so many of them, I think, are, frankly, cash cows. Mm-hmm. And are not, if, if you want to write, you don't need to be saddled with... A, you don't want to be saddled with a lot of debt, and B, you don't want to be saddled with someone else's ideas, someone else drumming you down. That is a big part of it. So. I mean, there's also, you know, being turned on to things you might not have known about. Yes. I mean, there, there there, are there's good, that flip side. There, when the good parts are there, they're very, very yeah. good. Uh, what were your interests going through this program? How much did the tone conversation speak to you, and how much were you interested in just... I just want to tell a story. I was in the theater department. I was a dramaturg, mm-hmm. and in the writing department, I was a nonfiction student. So, oh, really? I mean, style was a lot about you know finding a good story and covering it. Mm-hmm. I kind of got story built into what what you know the subject I was yeah. taking on, um, and and how you told it was very key. Mm-hmm. And so it was, uh, I think better and more applicable in my case and it was a little more it was it was more tolerable I think I think I would have had a harder time in the fiction department being constrained to you know writing a a kind of preconceived notion of what what an MFA program should be producing (laughs) absolutely for many years I think they were all producing you get a McSweeney's piece and then you get oblivion and that's what we want (laughs) for you Um, that was the best way to put it yeah Um, why nonfiction? why how did you get led there? Uh, just that was what I was reading, and mm-hmm. it was what I was interested in, and what it kind was. Of stuff? Uh, I was probably a Tom Wolfe obsessive at the time. Uh, that's when I when I think back, that's the first thing that in a lot of Joan Didion, a lot mm-hmm. of, and I felt that I. I was very. Uh, focused on being able to write for a living, mm-hmm. and I thought, well, if I study nonfiction. I might have a better shot because I w- my approach to writing was I can do it all and I will do it all and I will throw everything against the wall and see if it sticks huh. I will accept every job I will say I know how to do and if anyone asked me if I know how to do something I'd be like of course I know how to do that I can write that what is it what do you want me to write I'll I can do ride it. a horse I can, do the, I can do the show right here like that was very much my attitude so huh. did that did it work yes it totally worked <laughs> Um, because the way I got in was really throwing, writing all the time obsessively, mm-hmm. all over the place, showing it, to, shoving it under every nose, um, taking every job I could get my hands on. What were some of those early writing jobs? The early writing jobs, I did, uh, I worked, the most steady paying was educational publishing, which taught me a lot about... <laughs> Um, I, I did that myself for yeah, a very short time. I did it, I guess, on and off for about four or five years. Really? Because I walked in one day, and they're like, do you know how to do this? And I was like, absolutely. <laughs> of course I do. What am I doing? Yeah. And I learned a lot about how textbook gets made, how textbooks get made and how education 
uh, it's very it's a fascinating subject in and of itself like how subjects get into textbooks and mm-hmm. what what is and isn't allowed in like we would get these oh, exclusionary lists every publisher had their own list of things that you couldn't put in the books and they were like what oh <laughs> The last one I got was so fantastic, and it was after I'd left my last job that I sent it to Harper's, and they published it because it was so crazy. And I was used to seeing them, and it would be a very specific list of things that were not allowed. And the most common ones, there are usually hundreds, but the ones we always knew off the top of our heads, dinosaurs. You can never put in dinosaurs. You can never put in dice. Dice is gambling, so you always had to, if you were doing anything related to math, you had to call it a six-sided number cube. And you could never call it that. You always had to call it a six-sided number cube. To this day, I'm like, it's a six-sided number cube because I had to say it too many times. Awesome. Holidays. That is like a Martian would call it. Swimming pools. What? Danger. uh, The the danger and signs of affluence. Um, Caffeine. So chocolate and coffee. Um, Oh my. Certain names would be restricted at from in different places. Um, Yeah. uh, God, there were so many things. And you would get these big lists of things. They're like, well, if there's a dinosaur in the book, we won't be able to sell it in whatever state. That's unbelievable. Because, you know, that's going to be a problem. And so, oh, yeah, that it was a standard practice, absolutely, that you would always get the list of things that you wow. that you couldn't, and couldn't put in. So. <laughs> uh, so you had to find a way to work with these parameters. I had, eventually, the last job I had was so restrictive that... All I could write, all I could commission, because at that point I was an editor, were pieces about um, kids building community gardens. That was it. Like it was, I somebody did a somebody did a retelling of a fairy tale, and they're like, no, it's like it. Nothing with danger. Nothing with kids disobeying their parents. Nothing with. Oh, it, it it was literally nothing. That is. Crazy. And so yes, all I all I would say over and over again was, can we just have something about some kids making a community garden? <laughs> it is the, the softest, most uh, up with people thing. Yeah, it it's was the so only funny. topic that really didn't have any yeah. any danger signals. No in red it. flags there. So That's crazy. Um, what were some of these other early writing jobs? This is, that's really neat. Uh, I think I did... I mean, there is... When, when you were starting out as a writer, we should yeah. say, like, this is great advice. One, because it reiterates what we always say on this, which is just write. Just, just write. write all the time. And like you said, put it under any noses that you can, uh, and that will be helpful, whether they like it or not. Um, but also say yes to these things. I so, mean, oh, yeah. you work on shitty stuff. For years. Oh yeah, you'll do terrible, terrible jobs. Mm. Uh, I, yeah, just you never give up. You yeah. can never, ever, ever give up, and you never know what door will open through the weirdest Absolutely. possible. Like someone will know somebody. Was I that think, your experience? Yeah, my my trajectory was basically I did my undergraduate and I got a degree in technical writing and rhetoric mm-hmm. and theater. And then I took two years off and I worked, I was the literary manager of a theater company at night and a dramaturg. And then at day, at, during the day I had like a desk job. Mm-hmm. And so I was working God knows how many hours a day. Like I would start at nine and then I would be finished at 11 or midnight. And then I would drive home and I would fall asleep behind the wheel because I would be so exhausted. So that was, that was what needed to get done. Yeah. And then, you know, all weekends were rehearsals and... Were you, what were you writing at the time? I mean, you were writing for this theater that company, first, presumably. Yeah, that first year, um, 
I think the first year I was doing, I was spending my day job hours researching the play material a lot of times. Really? Well, I was going to ask, it was the sort of day job where you could get away with... Uh, it was a sort of day job where I did, yes. You I, had to. Um, I was the worst employee ever, and I worked for this very tolerant think tank firm connected to the University of Pennsylvania, where I think they knew that I wasn't doing anything, but I think they just kind of were, they liked having me around. They were generous. <laughs> Well, that's the other big lesson from these podcasts. Just be nice. Be a normal person. Yeah. It like goes they, a long way. Yeah, they were kind of like, well, we don't even pay her that much, so <laughs> eventually she'll she'll do something, we guess. Right. Um, I was a terrible employee. I was the worst employee. I mean, and if I wasn't doing that, then I was writing. Mm-hmm. And um, the, I mean, I'll give you an example of how terrible I was. I mean, I was half asleep all the time because I was working all night and I was broke, you know, as you are in these things. And I remember I was wearing this, like, totally cheap dress I'd bought it, like, on sale at, like, I don't know, the Limited or something. And it had, it was a button-down front sundress. Like, it was entirely buttons from, like, here, all, it was a long, long sundress, this long. I'm wearing a dress down to my ankles. And I had to take over the front phones. And I was half asleep, and I was trying, and it's a very expensive firm. Like, to have the partners come out was, like, like super expensive. You know, they would fly out. It would be like a billion dollars an hour. And I'm sitting at the front desk, half asleep, trying to, like, write something (laughs) and just praying the phone doesn't ring because I'm slurring my words because I'm so tired. And the head of the company comes in the front door and he caught me by surprise and I jolted in the chair and my dress caught on the, like, caught on the roller and the whole dress came open Mm -hmm. as I stood up. (laughs) My entire dress came open as I stood up. He didn't react, and neither did I. I just pulled it closed and said, hello, no calls. I was like, I'm really glad this is not my career because... And then I buttoned it back up and got back to what I was doing. So... um, Hilarious. And then I spent a year putting myself on this super weird writing diet where I still worked all day. And then I wrote four. I had a thing where I would write four to ten hours a day. And a lot of those were work hours. I was obsessive. I would would set myself all these tasks. Mm -hmm. So I would write books just for practice. I would write scenes. I would would go out to lunch and be like, today you're going to do this diner scene. Today you're going to do this. Today you're going to do that. Was it all towards a... A common project, or was it just writing for writing? Uh, I was doing one project that I wanted to see if I could write between a book and a script and back again. Like I was switch, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with it. And then I wrote a book for a friend as a joke. So every day I would just write, and it was a, it was a comic retelling of his life as a fairy tale. And it was it's probably the, it was, I wish I it's it's only really funny to him and four people, but it's probably the funniest thing I've ever written. And it, I would write like a chapter a day. And it was just an exercise in taking it. And my only point was, at the end of every chapter, I had to put the characters in a situation that was impossible for them to get out of. That's great. And I would stop there, and the next day I would pick it up, and then I would just move them to another situation. That's unbelievable. I don't know how I got away with this. I still don't know how I get away with half the stuff (laughs) I do. And then I... um, That must have been an unbelievable learning experience for you to figure out not just that you could do this stuff but the tricks that are in your arsenal yeah it was it was interesting but also at the time and I think this is a common experience and if you're if you're listening if you're even if any of you are if this is even a podcast I don't really know I've just tricked you into I know with me. Um, is that you will feel at times like it's all pointless like you are doing yourself these things to yourself for no reason 
you were always going to be broke. <laughs> it is always going to be terrible. Like, you know, like it's all, you know, for nothing, but it, it's not actually for nothing. Like you really just do have to put in the hours and have the belief that if you do it, you'll get better and you will, you'll, you know, this is how it gets done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then I applied to grad school. I went to Columbia and I took every job that I could around, you know, to keep myself there. Sure. It was a waiting tables. And one time I was a fake employee. What? A temp firm. Uh, I was uh, worked for a temp firm and this company wanted to make it, they had investors coming and they wanted to make it look like they were really busy. Oh and so they hired 25 temps to fill their office and pretend like we work there. You must have gotten so much writing done then. Well, I did, except that part of the job was we had to mill around all day and pretend to be in meetings. What? This is this is true. This That's is amazing. this is true. So it was one of those startup kind of companies where they had like we have a basketball court in the back because we're wacky, and they're like go back to the basketball court and just walk around with other people and pretend to be talking, and then go into the conference rooms and pretend to be on the phone. And, and so they wanted us to make phone calls all day. They wanted us to look like we were always on the phone. So we would sit there on the phone all day. This is like Brazil. This is yeah. insane. Oh, all my jobs were crazy. And then I got picked up by a media firm that used to go around the country doing uh, like big conferences, like the staging and the production of mostly pharmaceutical conferences. And I went out and I, uh, one time I spent a week in Las Vegas, completely sleepless, working for a pharmaceutical firm where uh, we ended up, I had to like process and make all these uh, hilarious sketches about <laughs> Drugs and fistulas and rheumatoid arthritis. Oh Plus, we had tiger. We had live tigers. We had a troop. This was part of the package provided yeah. by the. Well, partially because they fired the entertainment guy halfway through, so we had to do this. Um, we had Cirque du Soleil. Like, we had a branch. They have a like a, they have yeah. subsections of Cirque du Soleil that you can hire, yeah. Yeah. and we like didn't a know corporate. Yeah, like you can hire them, and they come in, and you know I have my slides in one hand, and I walk in and. All I know is that they're setting up rigging in the room that I went into, and there was a man wearing wings that had a 13-foot wingspan, and I just had my clipboard. I'm like, what are you doing? Are you in our show? And he's like, yes. I'm like, what do you do? And he goes, I fly. And then I was like, what do you fly into? And then I noticed they were putting all these balloons that were about two feet big around our proscenium, and they were all loaded with a small charge so that when he flew into them, they were designed to explode. Right. We were not fully informed of the pyrotechnics in this show. So um, at one point we had to hire, again, a famous comedian, uh, and he was going to fly on on his Learjet, and I had to go find him because he was, you know. So this is the kind of stuff I did. I did crazy jobs. I just took every job that came up and and lied and said I knew what I was doing. Sure. This is, never mind, you know, this allowing you to do the writing, but this is... Great experience. Oh yeah, you, my, these are where all the stories come. I, from. I like to get into as many stupid situations as possible, <laughs> and I'm like, that job sounds ridiculous. I'll do it, and uh, yeah, as many. And I worked in theater, so I had nothing but stupid experiences. You know, going around small flea bitten New York theaters. I have twice put out fires on stage. What? Well, backstage and then one on stage. Good um, Lord. Yeah, due to like shoddy electricity electrics and you know one case just actor pushing a bunch of costumes up against some hot lights and then leaving the dressing room until they started until they caught on fire um Uh, let's talk about theater for a second sure um we haven't had a lot of theater folk i'm not i can't i don't think i can really count myself as i mean i haven't you've you've worked in and written for i have worked in and yeah i've worked on shows and i i really wanted to adapt 
books for stage. That's what I... If I was going to do anything, I really thought that that's what I was going to be doing. Books uh, books for stage and possibly for screen, I thought. Really? Why, why that rather than original material? I just thought it was a fascinating exercise to see how one moved into the other. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think I was always looking for an angle. I mean, it sounds like you're... you're your mind is looking for these translation projects, these techniques and tricks and translations that are these puzzles to undo. And I was lacking, I mean, I was a little bit lacking confidence that if I wrote a show, it would be good enough. Really? Because I worked on so many terrible shows, I didn't want to inflict any more terrible shows on the, on the, on the poor, unsuspecting public. Um... I understand what uh, yeah so I, I really wanted to you know I thought that was and my first company that I worked for did a lot of um, mm-hmm. adaptations that was sort of what they did how tell me about that process though uh, they would choose I mean it was pretty straight up we <laughs> the last show we worked on oh bless I mean the last show we worked on I guess I could talk about this because the company doesn't exist anymore. It was a wonderful, wonderful company, but the show went terribly wrong, and it it busted up the company. Oh, no. Um, But it was sort of how I got into grad school because I had come from this terrible, crazy experience where the show went wrong, and I came up from my theater school interview, and they're like, why should we admit you to the program? I'm like, because let me tell you the shit I've seen. What happened? Well, we were adapting a Kurt Vonnegut play for stage. We were adapting (laughs) Cat's Cradle into a musical. Oh my god. And now come on, that's a great idea. There's no way that can go wrong. And everybody working on this like the everything there was one particularly bad apple in the bunch that ruined it. And um, this person I think sabotaged a lot of what was going on. And the the adaptation got wildly out of control because he kept changing it all the time and certain characters' roles were expanding while others were shrinking away to nothing. You know, the the music would be written, then he'd cut things, and then nobody seemed to be communicating to the stage designer anything, and the stage designer was building sets that were too big to go on the platforms of the stage themselves, so we would bring them in, and they would fall over to the orchestra pit, and then we'd have to hide them in the alley or try to put them in the trash, like huge airplane wings that people were supposed to do dances on that we were trying to sneak around the streets of Philadelphia at night. Um, fights, like... One, at least one fist fight. Um, it was drama. It was like drama, and I was like, "This theater people, my God!" Theater people eventually just burned me out because I I saw so much drama. Yeah. So much drama. Surprising no one. Oh, yeah. I mean, just by the end, I was like, "What? Why are we doing this? I don't understand anymore how anything gets done." So. Um, what was your role in all of this? I was the... Let me think what I was. That, I was the dramaturg, and I was also the assistant stage manager. What, what does that mean? The dramaturg is... What's involved? It depends on the show, but in the case of... Um, in a new show, you... And it depends on how the company actually mm-hmm. functions. But in the case of a new show, if you have a completely new script, you basically sit down as a sort of editorial voice. You sit down with the director and the playwright, mm-hmm. and sometimes you're like a mediator... Mm-hmm. If the director's like, You're, this is stupid, and I'm going right. to... I know you say this takes place, this is a drama, a heartfelt drama between brothers. I'm setting it on the moon. Right. And then the playwright's like, I'm going to light your hair on fire. And <laughs> um, you have to be like, now, let's, you know, let's consider why would these brothers be on the moon? And, um, you know, if it's an adaptation or if it's an older play, then you might be working on 
working with the actors to sort or the director mm-hmm. to kind of provide the historical context or right. you know That's kind of um, make sure it's it's accurate, it's consistent, it's. Yeah. So you can you basically the glue that's supposed to hold it all together. But yeah. mostly what you do is thankless job, and you try to separate people when they start pulling each other's hair. That was largely that's largely what I did, and I was smaller than all of them because they were usually big burly dudes. And I was like, you guys, <laughs> stop fighting. <laughs> so. Oh my god. So yes, one time the best I think the best thing that happened during the last show is. Um, this was very typical because by the, by the end, by the time the show got on its feet, the um, everybody was twitchy. Things were not going well. The stage manager had started smoking nonstop and had developed a visual twitch around his eye. And one day, um, it was five minutes to showtime, and I noticed that the band leader was not in place. And I said to the, the band leader's son was there because he usually traveled like he would show up with some of the band people. And I said, "Where is your father?" And they said, "He said he went to New York today." This was in, and the show was in Philadelphia. And I said, well, um, when did he go to New York? And he said, oh, you know, in the afternoon. I said, okay, so is he, is he coming? And he said, I don't know. And I said, okay. The son was eight. I don't know if I've already mentioned that. And, and I, he, I was talking to this eight-year-old son. And I oh said, my God. Your, your dad is not here. And he said, no. And I said, okay. Um, who's, who's going to... Um, going to lead the band and he said I'll do it and I said um and I got on my headset and I said uh so the the, the situation is that blah 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 is not here um and I heard silence and heavy breathing on the other end I said so his son um he's just going to take over what and then I heard a silence and then it's like fine Fine, we gotta go. We're just doing it. Fine. So, uh, and he was fine. Actually, the kid was great. Um, so, I would watch this TV none, show. None of us could tell the difference. So, um, that is literally one time the band just they forgot to show up. I don't want to say that they were stoned during, but they forgot to show up after the intermission, and then they got locked out of the house. And I found them outside. So. Yeah, it was a, it was a sad end to a really wonderful company. Um, That's nuts. So that was, but but none of this, which is interesting, turned you off to theater. No, I went still went to theater school. I was like, sure, why not? Let's do it. Was it in an effort to find a better way? I thought things would be different. You know, mm-hmm. I thought I would move to New York and everybody would be, right. you know, like none of these things would be happening. And then I got there, and this, the famous professor was like, no story, no audience. We're going to lock everybody in, make everybody sad. It'll be great. Oh and I said, God. oh, it's like this all over. Yeah. And uh, why aren't I writing? And, you know, I was and the whole time I was like, really, I should be just... And I was writing all the time on the side mm-hmm. anyway, and I was like, I'm, a, you know... I was trying to build up my portfolio of all this stuff. You know, I was writing constantly. If you, if you, sat, if you sat me down quietly for five minutes in the corner, I would be scribbling something away, so... Mm-hmm. Um, and like, what kind of stuff were you writing then? Again, was it, again, it was, towards something, or was it just um, doing it? I was just doing it, but I think I was starting to try to angle my way into... Um, I started... At that point, I had probably started my first book. Okay. Which is never... It's not the thing that turned out to be my first book. Mm-hmm. It was just a book that I was working on. Which I always hear is, this is how it happens. You yeah. write a book, you write your first novel... It disappears. 
It goes into a drawer. I still want to do it because I still I still have a lot of affection for it. But what happened was I knew somebody at an agency, mm-hmm. and they, unbeknownst to me, had been showing my work to, and it's a very high-powered agency, and they'd been showing myself my Jeez. stuff, my homework assignments from school, basically, oh, to wow. these agents. So these fancy agents had been looking at basically what were class assignments. That's interesting. And they said you should, and they're like, keep an eye on it. And was this, what kind of material? Was this journalistic material? Uh, this would have been like my nonfiction essays and yeah. my reviews and things like that. Okay. So uh, they, this friend of mine, who's one of my best friends, is now my agent, said, you should really write YA. And I said, what's that? And she explained it to me. I'm like, that's stupid. I'd be terrible <laughs> at that. And uh, she's like, no, you wouldn't. I'd be like, no, I'd be the worst. Like, I went to the, I went to a Catholic girls' school inside of a convent. I never was allowed out to do anything. Like, my all of my high school years are just one long story of me trying to dig a tunnel in the backyard and get out and be able to do literally anything at all. What would I even talk about? I will show you how bad I am at it. And, yes, exactly. The story ends exactly the way you're, that you're, yeah. And so I started to write this thing, and then it, yes, it got... That's really funny. It got published. And it turns out that that is exactly a very good background. Um, really? Being a kind of pent-up, angry teenager who wasn't allowed to do anything is a perfectly fine position to start from. <laughs> so, but, but you felt like, I mean, it sounds like you felt like you had no stories from being that age. You yeah. had You had an emotion about it. Right. But it didn't matter that you didn't have the stories from then specifically. Right. I always had a weird theory that turned out to be correct. I always said, I'll publish my first book at 28. <laughs> Really? And I did. That's really funny. Yeah, I just had a very strong sense. I'm like, I think that's about how long it's going to take. Uh, the thing we haven't really talked about is, you know, you've talked about all of this writing that you did for yourself, mm-hmm. for others, for school, um, and and the lesson of writing and writing and writing, and it hasn't come up. So I assume you do enjoy writing. I love it. I mean, it's what I yeah. do. It's not so much a choice mm-hmm. it's a behavior it's what I've done all my life since I was you know a little tiny it's really? the first thing I remember doing really it is it's really a single pointed interest from the time I was small I wanted to do it like mm-hmm. and it was just a behavior it was just it was just what I did did it was it always a real thing for you a career option yeah like, I started talking about it that way really pretty early interesting and my parents were like, well, why don't you become an engineer? And then I was like, are you crazy? Have you, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this. Like, this this is what I'm going to do. Were you a reader as well? Oh, yeah. I was a reader and writer. Like, those things aren't, set, you know, so as big reader is and most more of a reader even than a writer. You know, you have to kind of, I think, be the first one more than the second. So... What was um, the stuff you were into early on? What do you think? What do you... What can you trace as your influence? The first book I ever remember reading, like, actual book, um, was... A children's version of *The Hound of the Baskervilles*. Oh, neat. And I, I can still vividly see the cover. I can still re- remember vividly reading the first scene, in which Sherlock is telling Watson, you know, exactly what he looks like because he can see his reflection in the teapot. <laughs> um, and then, as a kid, I was this intense mystery reader. Like I would read two Agatha Christie's a day. Like that was my idea of fun summer vacation. Was just <laughs> sitting there, just reading every single mystery novel in the in the whole library and then of course I got pretentious in high school and tried to be read every pretentious thing I could get my hands on but some of which I genuinely enjoyed and some of which I just wanted to be seen reading mm-hmm. um, and uh, yeah you know you're uh, but I, I'm excited now because I'm kind of finally coming back it took me years to do it I'm like I really love mysteries why aren't I doing those like I genuinely love them like mm-hmm. it's sort of in my blood that I just 
it was the number. I guess I'm a little bit of a puzzle person, mm-hmm. so I would, it sounds like it, it. sounds like oh. it. So um, yes. Oh, that's really cool. So, um, so so tell me about. I mean, was this doing this first novel and even the second novel mm-hmm. to whether it's the one to say I can't do this? Mm-hmm. Um, was it just another? Exercise for you, or no. did it feel like a different? It felt type real. Of it felt real, you know, especially because suddenly it was a lot. Because I write for teens and young adults, there are certain set of questions you get asked a lot, mm-hmm. and one of them is, you know, I've written a book and I really want to get published, or sometimes just like I just really want to get published. Like sometimes it just sort of skips that first part, yes. and I was like, well, I never advise kids to do it. Honestly, I, I'm like, I mean, maybe now like you can put it up online or something, mm-hmm. but. Being published, as certainly as it exists now, and who knows what's going to happen, but it's such a different thing mm-hmm. than just writing something. They're, they might as well just, they are oh, too, absolutely. they're not connected yeah. in many ways. You write the thing, and then it goes, and then, then it becomes a product. It becomes not yours. It's still yours, but I mean, it becomes the property of the people who purchase it and the readers who read it. Yeah. And anybody can say anything they want about it. Wrong right in between you'll never really know Um, you're going to hear a lot of stuff you have to kind of have a sense of yourself and that I guess is the redeeming feature Mm -hmm. of the MFA program in the end because it turned out in the end one of the main facets of MFA programs is where you get your group your thesis group or your your seminar group of 10 people who read your pieces every week Mm -hmm. and all 10 people will generally come back with 10 sets of comments first person be like I love the mom the second person I hate the mom cut the mom yeah. and the second make the mom a toaster no no you send it in space and like everybody no. will tell you something different and you have to figure out how who to listen to and that is sort of what I think the point of it is and if they're useful then I think they're useful for that yeah. and so much of once you get published you have to kind of know who to listen to or you'll go out of your mind mm-hmm. very very quickly and how did you discover that I mean who who do you listen to very few people. I mean, I don't read a lot of, uh, like, I generally don't read online reviews. Mm-hmm. Like, you can't. You'll go crazy, you know. And the good ones may not be true. The bad ones may not sure. be true. Uh, so I o- only kind of a few, a handful of people who I have edit my stuff. Mm-hmm. And then aside from that, aside from a quick looking through the fingers at, at like, the major, like, you try, I try, I try to avoid it. Yeah. Because it it generally won't help you. Right. So. Yeah, it's... it's The good ones make you feel good for a second, mm-hmm. and the bad ones just make you feel terrible forever. Yeah, and you could you'll, you could lean into all the wrong things. You Absolutely. could learn all the wrong lessons. Um, so tell me a little bit about working with an editor or these friends who you mm-hmm. give to look at early versions. One of the great things about writing in young adult right now is that it's a very close community. Is it? And a lot of us are... There's a lot of us that are friends. It's very friendly. I mean, this, we genuinely spend a lot of time together on a personal level, with each other, physically writing together, in each other's houses, going away together. Um, so we know a lot of us, you know, it's a good place to know other people mm-hmm. and have a circ- like a sounding board. So my group of normal friends includes... It's like, if you throw a rock in any direction, you're going to hit a YA writer. <laughs> uh, but, but it feels like it's only become a viable uh, genre Mm -hmm. in the past, you know, 10, 15 years. Yeah. You know, I think we had, we had greats up until then, but it feels like 
like I say, I mean, you throw a rock. And yes. <laughs> there are, YA is is what uh, you know, procedurals are on TV. It's where the money is right now. It's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, it seems like you stumbled into it because to you, writing is writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this happened to be... It turns out to be the best audience, I think. Why do you think so? For a number of reasons. One is the immediacy of... Mm-hmm. I think why readers, especially young readers, will read more widely than adult readers. For sure. When you get adult readers, people are like, I read books about submarines. Right. Or hot nurses. Like, you know, whatever. Like, the people have their niches. Absolutely. And with, I find with young adult readers a lot more elasticity, mm-hmm. a lot more open-mindedness, um, less judginess of what it is they're supposed to be doing. Um, so I, I, a really higher quality of reader that is frequently looked down on. And deeply and unfairly so. Uh, And they'll get in touch with you because they know how the internet works. And so they can let you know very quickly what they think. That's really funny. You know, and not in a review sense, but sometimes just like they get in touch. And there's an expectation of sort of being able to get in touch. Absolutely. So um, it's it's an age, I think, in which people are uh, not afraid to be reading a lot, have the time to be reading a lot, are encouraged to read a lot. There's so many reasons why it's a good audience. And it's so crazy to assume that because they're younger, they're of a lesser degree of sophistication because they aren't. Uh, if anything, is that you see a certain amount of a degrading, I think, as sometimes when people go on because they stop reading and then they kind of forget how books work. Absolutely. <laughs> so It's hard to relearn how to read mm-hmm. uh, when your life becomes about your family, your kids, your yeah. job, all these other things. Yeah, yeah. for sure. When, they, when a young adult reader is usually more involved in the story, yeah. has caught more of it, as, <laughs> you know. Yeah, for sure. Do you, do you find yourself writing differently, knowing who your audience is, and not necessarily what their expectations are, but that, that there is that immediacy and that depth of uh, interest? No. Uh, I don't. I try not to change anything. Mm-hmm. You know, it tends to be the only thing that really I think designates it as YA is usually the age of the protagonist, mm-hmm. and yeah. it's a lot of. Usually, you get a lot of firsts, uh-huh. and that's simply because of the age of the protagonist. It made it's the first time you do something. Right. It's not like if you have an eighteen-year-old that's like, oh, I'm so burned out on love, I'm so burned out. I got all these ex-wives. <laughs> Wow. Actually, I'd read that, so I, I take <laughs> yeah, that back. I'd that. Yeah, that, that sounds amazing. In fact, <laughs> I'm going to do that, so nobody take that. Um, yeah, so you get a lot of fresh, mm-hmm. it's a lot of fresh perspective. Mm-hmm. Is it easy to put yourself in that point of view? Yeah, because I think it's the same point of view, and um, you, you just have to kind of, and it depends on what you're writing about. Like, my series now is very has an element in it that is supernatural and so therefore it's new to me too so sure that's true so. but I, what I really like I mean this is the Shades of London mm-hmm. series um, what I liked about that was the supernatural was almost secondary I mean you're using the metaphor of this is new stuff for the mm-hmm. metaphor of you know living life and mm-hmm. Being a young person, um, but the first in it, you know, the first time away, the first, first new school, whatever it is, the first romance, uh, that was the stuff that was so alive, you know, the stuff that really popped and felt real and human. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't, no supernatural books will really work unless you have a, I think, a kind of core Mm -hmm. of actual human emotion. also, that was a great... It was a vehicle for me to work in my interest in Jack the Ripper and how 
clearly. And how do we create like a, a media su- an evil media superstar, <laughs> which is all he really is is a media mm-hmm. is a media creation. In many Absolutely, ways. that was really interesting stuff, yeah. and it actually sent me down a wiki rabbit hole. It's pretty fascinating how little is known and how much of it is just sort of made up. Yeah. Uh, was this an interest before approaching this book? Fascinated. Kind of come together. I love to read about this kind of stuff, even as mm-hmm. a kid. And there's, uh, I, I remember because when I was a kid, there was a wave of Ripper theories going mm-hmm. around. I believe at the time it was the royal family theory was the popular one. Uh-huh. So, um, and I remember they thought they'd solve the case, and then every ten years they solve it. It's wonderful how they keep solving <laughs> this case. So, um, yeah. I remember very vividly, you know, reading about it and and not really knowing until I started looking into it just how much of it is completely made up by news, old newspaper guys really who are like, we're just going to give this guy a name, just string some stuff together, mm-hmm. scare the crap out of people, sure. sell a bunch of newspapers. Yeah, uh, that's fascinating so. and also relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, on this book, on Name of the Star specifically, because that's the first in the series. What was the jumping-off point for you? Was it the Ripper stuff? Was it what, what aspect of the story? I, the character? I, I knew I was going to write a mystery. I'd, mm-hmm. I'd finally said I'm going to get around to write this mystery that I've been meaning to write all my life. <laughs> and um, I was taking a tour of historical sites in London, and it was supposed to be a very hardcore academic tour. And they kept mentioning that all these rooms were haunted, and it started to make me crazy. <laughs> it's like, why are you bringing this into this? You know, yeah. The serious tour. tour. Why are you doing this? And they, and then I, 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 and they were all really terrible ghost stories. I'm like, why do you think it's haunted? Okay, okay, crazy. Like, what, what do you got? And they'd be like, because it's cold. Because the door opened. I'm like, yes, it does that. Otherwise, it's a wall. Like, it's, (laughs) it was all idiotic. And then I thought I would get better ghost stories. I went on a ghost tour to see if that was better. And it was even crappier. They're like, we thought we saw an orb in a photo. I was like, are you kidding me? And then I just started noticing that all of these ghost stories were terrible. And then I started watching all those ghost hunter shows. I kept expecting somebody to have something more entertaining and more... And they were all stupid. <laughs> and it started to get me so annoyed. that I was like, I'm going to make this about ghosts because I hate all these people and these stupid ghost stories. And you should have, if you're going to have a ghost, you should have a ghost. That, ghost, you should be able to do stuff. <laughs> Otherwise, it's stupid. If your whole point of being a ghost is you get to knock a pen off a table. Drag. Yeah. <laughs> that is unfair. That's hilarious. So. It started to take shape around this. Annoyance is a perfectly fine point to begin with. Yeah. Art fueled of anger, absolutely. Sure. <laughs> uh, let's talk nuts and bolts for a minute. What does your process look like? You don't have to work these shitty day jobs anymore. No, this is what I do. Yeah. So how how do you set out your day? How do you work? How do you live your life at the same time? Well, because it depends on what phase I'm in. If the book mm-hmm. is near being due, like right now I'm on a deadline. So the fact that I'm out of my house and wearing clothes is kind of a major accomplishment. Um, those days will be long. Mm-hmm. What is a long day? Uh, well, they used to be really long. Like, they used to be, you know, you start in the morning and then you end at, like, 2 in the morning. I don't do that anymore. I do I do word count days. Like, I mm-hmm. usually, like, I have to hit a certain point and then I can stop. What do you give yourself? I'm curious. Um, uh, if I really had to push 2,000, mm-hmm. which I think is, is an achi- it's, it's achi- it's easily achievable and also without getting too terrible mm-hmm. it's a, and it's a nice 
good chunk. And it gets you somewhere. Yeah. It gets it's you, not treading water. It gets you somewhere. Because a lot of it is building momentum and... Mm-hmm. Um, but then there might be other times that, you know, the days are also split with uh, speaking or traveling or um, that's the other part of author life, you know, is just okay. going to, you know, all, all kinds of stuff. Like this month is Book Expo America and or, you know, I'm going away at the end of the week you know, to speak somewhere and that's that's part of the job. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you work on those days or do you? Oftentimes I do, um, or tour or something. Mm-hmm. I try not to because I think it breaks your brain a little bit. But, you know, definitely airplanes I think are great because I can get a lot done on airplanes. Do you? They're nice and quiet. Yeah? You can't get online. You if can't you get, online, not to get online usually, yeah. You know, you're just stuck in a chair. It's nice and comfortable and someone brings you a cup of coffee and you <laughs> yeah. sit there with your laptop. And it's, I find them to be like a really nice, soothing place to yeah. I love to fly. It's so a good study hall. I'm not one of those people that has to take a Xanax or something. I, I think planes are, are neat. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm very happy on planes. So, That's oh, you gave awesome. me nuts? This is so nice. Um, so, yeah, on those days, yeah, hotel rooms are also good. Mm-hmm. Anywhere, I don't think you should, you know, I've written, a lot of times we go places and they're lovely. We go away to write in these lovely places. But I, it's actually much more effective if you're kind of in a blank Absolutely. staring in an empty hotel desk. With no distractions. A, yeah, there's nothing else to do. Or the empty patio that has just like a bunch of tables and yeah. nobody else sitting around. And Absolutely. So. Um, and do you... Do you like silence? Do you like white noise? Do you uh, like music? How do you? How do I you usually work? silence, or if I listen to music, it's a familiar playlist that mm-hmm. I'm used to. My my brain has already memorized the order of anything, and so that I won't just be listening to the music. Right, you can tune it out. My brain bit. will be expecting a certain rotation. Mm-hmm. So what what kind of stuff do you listen to? Oh, it's a... What's on the rotation? No, I mean really, <laughs> there are so many. Like I I'm a little bit of a magpie. I collect a lot of stuff, so. Mm-hmm. This is this particular one. that's very heavy on the David Bowie, which is fine. It's probably got uh, seventy David Bowie songs or something on perfect. this one, so I can listen to David Bowie forever. Absolutely. There's really nothing else that's required. Have in you any been way. to see him live? Yes, by the way? I have. He's like sixty years old. It's a great show still. I know. He can do anything. Yeah. All my life, I've been a, a like a very hardcore, you know. Good work. So. <laughs> um, and, and do you tend to work on one thing at a time? Are you able to jump around? I work generally on one thing at a time, but with on, I'm online a lot, so mm-hmm. I try to kind of pop on and pop off and talk to people and come back again. Yeah. So I tend to get mixed up in stuff sort of by accident. Like you, you can fall down a little internet rabbit hole or you can fall down a conversational rabbit hole, mm-hmm. and you have to be careful. Absolutely. So, um, how much research is involved with the stuff that you write? This how much one, do you care to do, and how much quite you a actually lot. do? Quite a lot, actually, for this one. I mean, I've been working on this particular series since. What year is it now? Two thousand and nine is probably when I would have signed on. So, I I was. It's all cumulative. Mm-hmm. So it was a lot of. It was a lot in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Reading a ton about. I spend a lot of time in England. My partner's English, and so mm-hmm. I I would physically... You know, all the Jack the Ripper stuff, I got to the point where I could physically walk to all the crime scenes without oh the map and actually know where on the sidewalk. Because, you know, you just get all that information, Absolutely. and I had to know how long it took to walk from one street to another, and you turn, like, how to get from Mitre Square to... Yeah. Um, 
police procedure in England to a lot of underground stuff. Mm-hmm. How the tubes are constructed, uh, which ones were used for shelters, the sewer system. I know a lot about the sewer system. Um, how, uh, who drives the trains, how many disused tunnels there are, how many, what the underground structure is, what the procedure is if you find bodies underground, um, how many layers of bodies there are in London, how many plague pits there are in, but, are in London, how many... Uh, everything. Do, you, do you find... I mean, we talk to a lot of like procedural writers and stuff like that who really enjoy that research but find it falls away as they kind of get involved in the story. Yes. And you start out putting a lot in but take it out and take it out and take it yeah. out. Yeah. Has that been your... Uh, I remember a grad school flashback of nonfiction where they're like, you should, their, their thumb measurement thing was, Mm -hmm. you should do four times more research than you need. Yeah. It it makes sense. So. You know the stuff. It's going to be in there whether it's explicitly You definitely don't want to use everything you know. That would be ridiculous. You know, you have, you have to fill your brain and then it's, a lot of times it's a question of reading a whole book for a single fact that floats up. Absolutely. For like, sure. you'll know that, oh, well, I just read this whole massive book, but all I took away that I need is that there's a well, you know, <laughs> right. on this street. Absolutely. So. Um, and are you, uh, are you interested in other media? Are you interested in doing some more, some playwriting, some television yeah. film, that kind of thing? I definitely am. And I'm, I've, I've started to sort of branch out in those directions a little mm-hmm. bit. It's a question of time. Of course. Um. But I'm hoping to really soon, especially, uh, I, I, I don't say this, uh, I'm like, oh, I, my publisher's hopefully not listening because, you know, books signed up, <laughs> right. you know, uh, I've got plenty of books signed up ahead, so, um, but I, I'm, I think it's an exciting time, like, there's so much, like, the thrilling adventure hour, like, there's so many exciting things that are being made that are... Yes, <laughs> go make your own thing. Yeah, to make your own uh, thing is just, like, the... That's a little more. That's a little faster than mm-hmm. you know the time it takes to. It's an exciting an time, so I'm into that. Yeah. So hopefully soon, is my goal. That's great, I, and I would imagine you know like a screenplay formula or a comic book format or something like that would appeal to you as something to crack because it's yes. storytelling. That part's easy, mm-hmm. but well, <laughs> that part you enjoy. <laughs> But to to kind of figure out the puzzle of these different formats, uh, I mean, for me, has been fascinating. Yes, I, I imagine it would appeal to. Uh, what are you reading these days? What are you watching on television and movies? Whatever. What I, are you into that's getting you excited and inspired? I better run only two minutes. Um, yes. I watch a lot. Almost all the TV I watch is English, uh, partially really? because it's always been that way, and partially because I am my partner English so we mm-hmm. just end up watching all English shows I've seen every English police procedural or spy <laughs> show I can tell you everything about like like encyclopedic knowledge if this was like a real usable valuable <laughs> I would be rich and famous like I, I, I know so much about these shows I can just list you all the things like all the ways they have been structured and all the characters I'm just Crime shows and and spy are there shows. any that you recommend in particular? Oh my God, there's so many. You, you've, you've upset me because I usually have to hand, uh, and I'm thinking which ones I've seen seen most recently that I really liked, and then there's ones I like for other reasons because they're crazy. Hi, sorry. Um, I am currently the only person who hasn't seen Orphan Black, so I'm embarrassed. <laughs> uh, 
Mark oh. Evan Jackson. No. Come over here and meet I, Maureen. I'm, I'm drawing a blank. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Maureen Johnson. Hi, nice Mark, to meet you. Andy. Beth. This is my wife, Beth. Hi, Hi. nice to meet uh, you. Nice podcast. To meet you. You're going to cut it out. No, I'm going to leave it on. As a writer. <laughs> oh my God, please leave it in. Uh, Maureen was at the show last night. It was oh. amazing. She really liked the unbelief. <laughs> That's me flipping over the table. That's uh, not no, true. she enjoyed the show. Thanks it was for being amazing. There. This is instrumental to the writing. Process. No, it, it is. This is key. Going to good shows is instrumental to the writing. Well, that part we were just talking about that. So. Oh, inspirations. Did you love the audience? That was an excited audience. I always kind of gauge the audience's experience, like their their familiarity with the show, by how many say pow and raise their fists during the sparks uh, of a theme that I sing. And it was billions. Left. The guy next was, to me. It was huge. Knew yeah. Everything about sparks. Nevada. Nice. Did you witness Dick Cavett moonwalking yes. during the curtain call? Dick um, Cavett moonwalk. Dear Lord. At that point, the whole experience was starting to get a little bit. I thought you were just going to be like, and just start bringing out people that weren't on the show, like dead, like dead dead celebrities. Yeah, here's Alfred Hitchcock, (laughs) and of course you know Marlon Brando, (laughs) all of my good friends, Groucho Marx. Yes, what happened? There's video of of Bisbee and me going like. <laughs> what, yeah. What is I don't under. That was the other. Oh when you see John Hodgman and Dick Cavett together, it, it finally dawned on me. I'm like, oh, John Hodgman will just yeah. ascend and become yes. and yeah. become Dick Cavett. Dick Cavett. And now they're having a fight because <laughs> the John Hodgman is trying to kill Dick Cavett so he can assume the throne. Exactly. But Dick Cavett Take is fighting back. Yeah. I don't know who we get next. Uh, like what's left? You, you get Alfred Hitchcock. Exactly. We have to go to dead celebrities. Yeah, I don't know. This is something to think about. Like, if I don't, I think I better. You should get going. So I, let me say this. I am. Going, thank you for being oh, here, Maureen. Thank you for having me. <laughs> this was a pleasure. Uh, do not be a stranger. No, are you kidding? Once once invited in, I'm like a I'm like a terrible house guest. <laughs> You're right? someone. You're a mother-in-law in a uh, oh, 70s I'm, sitcom. I am literally the worst. <laughs> now leaving Nerdist.com. 